Today's reading is going to be from Romans 3, 21 through 26. But now a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have been who have faith in Jesus. This is God's word. Thanks, Megan, for reading to us. Do keep the Bibles open at Romans chapter 3. I'm tempted to say, when you've got a passage like that, that is so wonderful and yet has uh, such complexities in the way it's expressed, shall we um, take one of those children's Bibles and uh, <laughs> have a sermon from that this morning instead? Um, no, we'll stick with the uh, uh, NIV. Let's pray as we look at this great passage together. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the salvation that came to us in Jesus and his death on the cross. Thank you for what that shows to us of your character, your grace, your love, and your justice. And Lord, as we look at this passage this morning, please show us more of that great salvation, that we might delight in it more and more. In Jesus' name, amen. Now this morning, we're thinking about the righteousness of God and specifically how God makes us righteous through the death of Jesus. Now that's quite a, an abstract thing to begin thinking and talking about. So as we kick off, I want you to imagine a particular feeling. And I'm sure you're either familiar with it, uh, hopefully not personally, but certainly through what you've seen on uh, TV. Imagine yourself in that moment that occurs in just about every courtroom drama where uh, the person who's been on trial... Uh, stands outside on the steps of the courtroom, having just been declared innocent. And they emerge into the sunshine, and there's huge grins on their face, and they're mobbed by a, a, a cheering crowd, and the police and the lawyers are trying to guide them through, and the journalists all want to uh, have a word. Um, and you're overcome with, with relief and joy. You just can't quite believe that you're free. You were expecting to be convicted, and sent away for a long time. And, uh, everything in the, the, the legal process had been going against you. And it all looked absolutely terrible. The lawyers were losing every single point as they tried to defend you. And then at the very last minute, just before uh, the seemingly inevitable conviction happened, some new evidence comes to light, some new twist. Uh, and suddenly, the evidence against you utterly falls apart. It's gone. Now the judge writes off the case. Uh, declaring you innocent of all charges, and you're exonerated, you're vindicated, you're sent out to meet the, the waiting world, to stand out there in the sun. And you look at the sun, having never expected to see it again, and you're overcome with surprise and joy, and perhaps most of all, relief. Are you there, familiar from many, many courtroom dramas? Capture that feeling of relief. And let me ask you, does the death of Jesus give you something of that feeling. 
Does the death of Jesus give you something of that feeling of relief? Because if so, you, you probably understand to some extent what it means to be made righteous by God. The relief, the joy, and, and how much you needed it. And our passage explores that. We're going to look at how wonderful it is that God has made us righteous. Now, by way of definition, uh, biblically, righteousness is essentially a legal term. Uh, you're declared to be in the right, a person who has kept the law, in, in Bible terms, kept God's law. Uh, in Bible times, there were no uh, prosecution lawyers on behalf of the state. They were just lawyers and judges who decided between two parties. And at the end of the case, one person would be declared right, the other person would be declared wrong. Uh, so one was righteous, one was unrighteous. Uh, and so there's, there's kind of negative and positive aspects to being declared righteous. Uh, negatively, you're declared more innocent of breaking the law. Uh, you're acquitted, declared innocent. Uh, but that's not quite strong enough. It's not just that you've avoided contravening the law. Positively, you're declared to be a law keeper. You've kept every requirement of the law. Now, think of it this way, slightly cheekily. You could say that because I've never accidentally gone through a red light on a bicycle... I'm a more righteous cyclist than Matt Lloyd or Matt Fuller, um, who have confessed in previous sermons. Um, You could say that, and I wouldn't stop you from saying that. Um, The fact is, though, that I don't use a bicycle to get around. And so, although negatively I haven't broken the cycling laws, you can't really say that I've positively kept them either. Um, When God declares somebody righteous... Uh, It means both negatively they haven't broken the law, but also positively they're a law keeper. They have done what is right. At the center of the Bible's description of someone who will be blessed and saved and loved by God is this righteous person whose, step a bit bigger than cycling laws, whose whole life has been righteous. That is the person that God blesses, God loves. And by, by the way, to understand this passage, it helps to, to know that justification means exactly the same as being made righteous. Now, they're different words in English, but in the original Greek, it's the same word going on. So uh, for justification, maybe the only context you use that these days is Microsoft Word, left aligned, right aligned, centered, justified. Um, don't think of it in those uh, terms. Biblically, justification is exactly the same as being made righteous by God. So how can we be righteous? A whole life lived, pleasing, keeping the law of God. And our verses show us that the only way to be justified, to be made righteous, is by the death of Jesus. So let's dive in. Three things from this passage. In the death of Jesus, we see God's righteousness finally revealed, freely given, and fully demonstrated. So first, in the death of Jesus, we see God's righteousness finally revealed. And this is verses 21 and 22. Let's read from verse 21. But now a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. God's righteousness 
is finally revealed. Those words at the beginning of this chapter, but now, those, those words, that is the, the brilliant moment where the lawyer sidles up to you in court, just when you think everything is going to go against you, and says, I found a way. I found a way that we can get you off this. This righteousness comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, and we'll say a lot more about that in a moment. But for now, look at those phrases in verse 1. Righteousness comes, sorry, verse 21. Righteousness comes apart from law, and to which the law and the prophets testify. Now that gives us just a hint of the court case that in a sense has been raging so far in this letter to the Romans. And, uh, and so far going against us at every point. Uh, here is the message of Romans so far, simply. Um, no one is righteous, and the law proves that. Uh, so back up a little bit in chapter 3. Have a look at verse 10. Here is Paul summarizing where he's got to so far in the letter, quoting bits from the Old Testament. Verse 10, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. What a damning verdict that is on humanity. Paul has done the work of a a lawyer in in these chapters, chapters 1 to 3, mustering the evidence against humanity. And he concludes that we're all lawbreakers. We're all unrighteous. In chapter 1, he lays out the claim, uh, everyone in the world has rejected God and turned against his rule. Chapter 2 says it's true of every single person, both Jews who had God's written law in the Old Testament and Gentiles who didn't have that law written down, uh, but had it on their conscience, and they still disobeyed it. Jews disobeyed the written law, Gentiles disobeyed the law in their conscience, and chapter 3 gives that summary, no one is righteous, absolutely no one. No one is made righteous by the law. In fact, the law just makes us aware of our unrighteousness. So have a look at verses 19 and 20, just before our passage. Paul says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, and he means by that the people of Israel who had the law and were under the written law, So that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. So in other words, Israel was a kind of test case for the whole of humanity. Uh, God took a a sample out of humanity and uh, gave them the law. And representing all of us, they failed to keep it. It's a little bit like, uh, uh, you know, when you wonder if your milk's gone off. Uh, you get it out of the fridge and a slight whiff from the top of the bottle. You think, well, it's still in date. should be all right. Maybe it's just the bit around the, the rim. You know how that sometimes happens? So you need to taste a bit that's in the bottle and see if it's all right. So you take a little sample. Yeah, you pour it in a, in a glass and have a, have a swig. And if it's all right, you can put it on your breakfast. It's fine. Um, but if it's not, if that sample that you take is bad, then the whole bottle's gone. You've got to chuck it. The milk's bad. A little bit like God taking a sample from the whole of humanity, the people of Israel. They failed to keep the law. And so by that same law, the whole of us, all all of humanity, are shown to be law breakers, unrighteous in God's sight. So verse 20, therefore no one 
will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. You could say, in a sense, the whole of the Old Testament is about delivering that bad news. The whole of the Bible before Jesus comes. That lesson needed to be learned. When God began to give the law to to the people, there was great confidence. Several times they said, back in the book of Exodus, everything the Lord has said, we will do. And it's as if God says, okay, let's run with that. Let's test that and see if that works. And so follows 1,500 years of biblical history before Jesus. And we might look at that and think, well, if if only they'd said 1,500 years before Jesus. No, we can't do it. We can't do it. Have mercy. Help us. But they said, no, everything the Lord has said we'll do. And so we needed to learn how unrighteous humanity truly is. And it is that terrible news that Paul has been delivering so far in Romans. And reading Romans up to this point is a little bit like sitting in a courtroom and having every single verdict, every single comment and judgment go against you. Every accusation sticks. People are unrighteous, you and me. We're we're not justified by the law. We're, We're condemned by it. And that is where these amazing words in verse 21 come in. But now. But now, 1,500 years after that law was first given, after so much of the Bible has shown the unrighteousness of people, but now God has found a way to make people righteous. And it's not through law. That didn't work. (laughs) It's through faith in Jesus Christ. This is absolutely wonderful news. I was um, reading recently about a lady called um, Betty Ann Waters, who is, uh, she's a waitress in Rhode Island in the US. Um, But uh, several decades ago, her brother Kenny was convicted of murder, wrongfully convicted of murder, and she knew that it was a wrongful conviction. Uh, But the, the court case went very quickly. They weren't able to prove it. Uh, they hadn't got enough money to reopen the case and pay lawyers to, to, to do that. And so she decided to do something incredible. She decided that she would train as a lawyer. Now, I don't know if she knew at the beginning quite how long that would take. She hadn't got a lot of education. It took her 12 years. She went back to high school. She then got a, a first degree. She then got her law qualifications. And finally, with all of that training under her belt, which she hoped one day would be able to help her brother, uh, finally the answer came. She hit on something she was reading about DNA, which at the time was was quite new, and uh, and it was reopened, and DNA was was the way that her brother was finally uh, released and proven to be innocent. What What a love of that sister. Extraordinary love. 13 years of her life devoted to finding a way to get her brother declared righteous. How much greater is the love of God in finding us a way to make us righteous? Such extraordinary patience over hundreds, thousands of years until the day when finally it was the right time to bring out uh, that way of being righteous. And he's even more extraordinary than Betty Ann Waters because... Unlike her brother Kenny, we're not righteous. We don't deserve this rescue. 
So think how loving God is to look at, as he does on the world of unrighteous, guilty sinners, and say to us, I'm going to provide a way. He promised that throughout the Old Testament. Uh, That's what Paul means by saying his righteousness is something to which the law and the prophets testify. Uh, This was not God saying, like Betty Ann Waters did, I'm going to find a way to, uh, uh, to get you proven innocent. It is God saying, I'm going to get you declared innocent even though you're unrighteous. And Paul in Romans says, but, but now, but now, this is it. This is how you should think of the death of Jesus with wonder and gratitude and relief as God's righteousness for you is finally revealed after that long, long, long wait. That is our first point in the death of Jesus. God's righteousness is finally revealed. Secondly, it is freely given. Now this is verse 23 to 25a. Let's pick it up from verse 23, uh, the end of verse 22. There is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as an, a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. There's a a huge pileup of words and concepts there. Um, I heard one preacher who described this um, as a a wonderful steak, and his job was to cut it up and serve it to the people. I feel a little bit like that um, this morning. In essence, here is what is going on. Righteousness or justification comes to us as a free gift through the death of Jesus, which was a redeeming sacrifice on our behalf. So it's a free gift. And it has to be. Of course it has to be. In case we haven't got it, Paul says it again in verse uh, 24. All have, verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The only way for us to be given a righteousness uh, is to have one that is not of our own. We don't have any righteousness of our own. We have to be, in the words of verse 24, justified freely by his grace. Now, that is a very, very humbling place to be. I imagine while um, innocent Kenny Waters was in prison, and I guess while any wrongfully convicted person is in prison, there's, there's quite rightly a sense of outrage, entitlement. I deserve freedom. What am I doing in this prison cell? I, de- I deserve to be declared innocent, to be let out of this uh, jail, to be, to, to be justified, to be declared righteous. And we all have a, a bit of a sense of that when we're wrongfully accused of something. And when we look at anyone being unjustly incarcerated, that's a a terrible, terrible thing. But we're not entitled to that sense of outrage or self-justification. We've sinned. We're guilty. We're unrighteous. So, So how does it come to us, this gift of God's righteousness? Well, let me bring out three things from verses 24 and 25 all describing how in the death of Jesus, God gives his righteousness to us. So three things, redemption, sacrifice of atonement, and faith in his blood. Those are the three big concepts in those verses. Redemption, sacrifice of atonement, and faith in his blood. Redemption. Uh, Jesus' death was a redemption, which means a ransom payment made to secure the release of, of someone or something. 
It's actually an image from the slave market. Uh, if you're a slave uh, in ancient times, you, you are owned by somebody. You have no freedom of your own, no right to just walk away and be free. But you can be bought out. If someone is willing and able to pay for you, to pay the price for your freedom, uh, then there can be a ransom payment or a redemption payment which redeems you from slavery. In some ways, it's quite a similar picture to uh, the legal punishment we've been talking about. A lot of slaves were in slavery because uh, at some point they'd committed some kind of crime or somebody in their family had, and their slavery was a form of punishment at times. And the biblical picture is of all humanity enslaved. All of us, without exception, enslaved to sin, to our rebellion against God and the consequences of that, uh, being declared guilty by God and condemned by him. Now, uh, in human slavery situations, some slaves are better off than others. We know that there's all sorts of different forms of slavery that there have been in history. But this slavery to sin is of the worst possible kind. We cannot escape it, and it will kill us. And so just as we spoke of the freeing, uh, that that feeling of relief as you walk away from a courthouse, uh, imagine the wonderful feeling of freedom of a slave as they as they're told those those magic words someone's bought your freedom you're free to go you, you don't have to stay here you, you can just walk out it's been paid and the price for our freedom is Jesus his death on our behalf his extraordinary offer to us is just that i will take your place i'll buy you out at the cost of my own life I'll take your shackles off and put them on myself. Um, I'll bear the punishment that you're supposed to bear. I'll die the death that you have got coming to you as this slave. And we watch as the chains are taken off us and put on Jesus instead. And he takes our place. He uh, takes our unrighteousness, gives us his righteousness. Do you see the enormity and the significance of that? As Jesus says to us, you're free. I've paid. Jesus says, set them free. Take me instead. That's redemption. Sacrifice of atonement, secondly. Jesus' death was a sacrifice offered to God in a similar way that many of the Old Testament sacrifices of um, bulls and sheep and goats and so on were sacrificed in the temple. Um, They were a substitute. So the people were unrighteous. They deserved punishment. God was destined to deliver that punishment. He was rightfully angry with sin. And yet he also loved them and provided an alternative, a, a substitute So God's anger would fall instead of on the unrighteous person, on the animal sacrifice instead. And the person would go free with God's anger dealt with and their punishment taken away. Now in the Old Testament it was all a a picture of uh, how God would really do it. Uh, the, The priests would... Uh, would offer the sacrifices and then some of them would, would have it for their dinner. So, uh, you know, roast lamb after doing the sacrifices in the temple. They, that was a picture of what would really happen. All those pictures of sacrifices have found their reality. Here is how God 
would really do it, how he would really take away his anger and the punishment the people deserved. Jesus is the sacrifice of atonement. Or if you look at the footnote in your Bibles for verse 25, uh, Jesus is the one who would turn aside his wrath, taking away sin. Jesus would turn aside God's wrath, taking away sin. There's an old English word for this. Uh, Some of you may know of it. Propitiation. To propitiate someone is to take away their anger, uh, to turn them from anger to friendship. And Jesus propitiates the Father on our behalf by taking the punishment that we deserved onto him, exhausting the the anger or the wrath of God. Uh, Like a a lightning conductor, I take it you've seen um, uh, trees that have been struck by lightning uh, they're a pretty horrific sight. They're dead, they're burned, they're split apart, torn open. Uh, there's a, an enormous tree uh, near where my parents live in the Vicarage Garden just down the road from where my parents live. It is absolutely huge. Uh, it is not like trees we normally get in the UK. It's like one of those giant redwoods you get, you get over in North America. I think it is something like that. It's, it's a bizarre non-British species that is, I don't know, I don't know when it was put there. It's yeah, absolutely huge. And because of that... It's exposed to lightning more than anything else nearby. And I'm I'm sure it's pretty regularly struck by lightning. But at some point in its history, somebody had the sense to install a lightning conductor on this enormous tree uh, uh, pretty wisely. So that if it's struck by lightning, all of that immense destructive power will not hit the tree and burn it and destroy it. It'll be diverted and turned aside and taken away. And that is Jesus, the sacrifice of atonement. Uh, He turns aside the Father's wrath so that that destructive force does not uh, come upon us. Again, imagine the relief as Jesus says, don't punish them for their sin. Take me. So redemption, Jesus says, set them free and take me. Sacrifice of atonement. Jesus says, don't punish them for their sins. Take me. And faith in his blood, lastly, of these three things. Faith is most simply expressed as just trust. Jesus has made the offer to make that payment for us, to take the punishment for us and turn aside God's anger. He's, more than that, done everything it takes. He's gone to his death to be our redemption and to be our sacrifice of atonement. And for his death to actually count for you and for me, we've got to trust him. We've got to have faith in his blood. Let me just try to illustrate the urgency of this. Your, your life is at stake. My life is at stake. We're up against a firing squad for what we've done. Imagine that. And to our wonder and amazement, Jesus just steps in from the side and says, Take me instead. Take me instead. Shoot me instead of this person. And his offer is accepted by the authorities who've lined you up uh, to be shot. What, what then? What do we have to do? We have to walk away and let Jesus take our place. Jesus is there whispering to us, go, go now, go, go. I've taken your place. What are you waiting for? Don't just stand there in line and get shot. Uh, my sacrifice for you is acceptable. They've agreed to it. Quick, get out of the firing line. 
Believe me when I say you're free to go without punishment. Just have faith in my blood on your behalf. In the death of Jesus, we see God's righteousness freely given. Have, have you put your trust in that? Or are you still standing in the way of those rifles? Astonishing as it is, I think pride can make us do that, to refuse to accept Jesus' amazing offer of substitution. Uh, no, I, I don't need any help. I don't want something freely given. I'll take the consequences of my own actions. Thank you very much. I remember being quite taken aback when a few years ago, a colleague of mine, uh, his father died, uh, and another colleague was trying to comfort him and said something like this. He said something like, um, God is very merciful, you know. Maybe, maybe your dad is in a better place. And we, we might have all sorts of things to say about that. But uh, what shocked me was uh, the bereaved guy's response. He said, no, I'm proud of my dad, and my dad was a proud man. He never wanted any help in life, and he wouldn't want any help in death. He never accepted charity before, so why should he accept it now? Isn't that utterly, utterly tragic? I went away feeling very sad from that conversation that somebody's attitude could be like that. I don't need help, even from God, even from Jesus. I don't care what he offers. I'm a self-made man. I, I don't want free gifts. I don't accept charity. Don't do that. These verses are unbelievably good news that every single person in the world needs. These are the best news that anybody could hear. So don't let pride stop you from seeing that. God's righteousness really is a free gift. No strings attached, no questions asked, but we do have to have that faith to accept it. So in the death of Jesus, God's righteousness is finally revealed, freely given, and lastly, fully demonstrated. This is our, our third and final point, uh, verse 25b to 26. In the death of Jesus, God's righteousness is fully demonstrated. God's own righteousness, his own justice, his personal character must be demonstrated and maintained. Uh, let's read verse 25 halfway through. God did this to demonstrate his justice, because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. The cross demonstrates that God is just and the justifier of the unjust. Let me say that again. The cross demonstrates that God is just and the justifier of the unjust. Or you could say it with the righteousness word. Uh, the cross demonstrates that God is righteous and yet makes unrighteous people righteous. That is the incredible reality of the cross. God's justice, his own righteousness, is maintained even as he makes unrighteous people righteous. We often talk about the cross as a great act of God's love, the demonstration of God's love, and of course that is right. But it is also an act of justice. God, in his love, found a way to be both loving to the undeserving and just 
and righteous in his own character. Now let me explain that a little bit. Um, God, throughout the Bible, has explained that he wants to show love and mercy to people. Uh, But he also has to show justice. And those two seem to be permanently in conflict. God reveals his, his desire to love and forgive, and yet he must punish. He cannot just sweep things under the carpet as if they hadn't happened. Now let me uh, illustrate that a little bit. Do you remember the mother who, after the riots last year, called the police on her daughter? She'd uh, watched the footage on, on the television and recognized her daughter taking part in some of the violence and, uh, and robbery. And after agonizing about it, confronting her daughter, decided, I, I've got to call the police. I have to. Can you imagine the agony that mum went through? Can you imagine how distressing it would have been for her to make that call? I, I just can't imagine how terrible I would feel if one day when our little boy Joel grows up, I have to call the police on him. I just can't imagine it. I, in one sense, I love him so much that I would do anything to stop him having to, to go through that. And yet at the same time, I know justice must be done, even for my son. And so I hope I would do the right thing and make the call. Now, imagine God. God looks down on the world, on his children. And there is no one righteous. Not even one. Can you imagine that? They're all bad. They all deserve justice, punishment. How does God feel? He longs to show love. He longs to show mercy. But he has to show justice. And how is that going to be resolved? Now here's here's how it's sometimes put. You sometimes hear people express it this way. God's love overcame his justice. So God longed to show love. God longed to show justice. In the end, his love was just more powerful and his justice came second and got swept out of the way. And so at the cross, God forgot about his justice, decided to ignore that and just show us love and mercy. Now, (laughs) it sounds nice, doesn't it? Uh, Someone's love overcoming their justice. Uh, I've got to punish you. I don't want to. I'll tell you what, I'll just leave it. Sweep it under the carpet. Um, I can overcome it just by letting my love overcome it. Sounds great, but it doesn't work. It doesn't work for God. It can sometimes work for us. This is where we get confused. Um, If I demanded justice every single time our little boy Joel, who's two and a half, uh, kicked up a fuss at the table, um, knowing that I wouldn't like him to drop his spoon on the floor, looked at me and went, "Uh." Um, if I demanded justice every single time that happened, we wouldn't get anywhere. We really wouldn't. Um, and sometimes that is okay. Uh, sometimes you try and explain something to him, and then, because he's two and a half, he's forgotten what he did ten seconds later. So how, how are you going to deal with that? Um, human justice at, at every level is imperfect at times. We do our best, but the existence of the universe is not at stake when we get it wrong, when we back down. Not so with God. Uh, All through the Bible, it is assumed that uh, the only way God can righteously deal with human sin and and injustice is to punish it. 
There is no justice if God simply decides not to take uh, sin seriously. Now, we've got to say, that is one of the big problems with Islam. You talk to a Muslim and they'll tell you about the, the mercy of Allah and that they hope Allah will be merciful uh, on, on the areas where they have uh, failed to be obedient. And yet if Allah is merciful, we need to ask, on what basis? How is it just to just overlook sin and sweep it under the carpet? That is not a God of justice. That is a compromise. If Allah just decides to ignore sin, to to fail to deal with it, to sweep it under the carpet, then he's fundamentally unjust. He's like one of the corrupt judges that we despise, who dishes out favors to friends. For God to have mercy without justice would call into question his very character. Uh, Yeah. And Romans as a whole asserts God's justice, his righteousness. He's not impartial, he's not unfaithful, he's not unjust. And up to this point, Romans has all been about that intractable problem. Uh, A righteous God couldn't just let unrighteous people off the hook, much as he might want to, even long to. He couldn't just declare them righteous when they're not. He couldn't just justify them when they've been unjust. And that is the wonder of the cross of Christ. We are let into this description of the fantastic news of how God can do something utterly amazing. How he can declare us righteous even though we've been unrighteous and yet remain righteous himself. Or again, to use the justice language, how he can justify us even though we've been unjust and yet remain utterly just in his own character. This, the cross of Jesus, is finally how God can justly justify the unjust or righteously make righteous the unrighteous. Justice has to be seen to be done. Uh, It must be demonstrated. It explains how, as Paul says in the Old Testament, uh, God could overlook uh, past sins. How could God love and forgive his people as he did so often in the Old Testament, even though they didn't deserve it? Well, the cross. <laughs> the cross works backwards. It is where God's justice is proven for his justifying the unjust in the Old Testament. God had overlooked those former sins. It is how God can be just today, how God can forgive us now. There is no hint of injustice in him, even as he justifies us the unjust punishment is given but Jesus takes it now these are the the wonderful things about the cross that this passage gives us in the death of Jesus God's righteousness is finally revealed freely given fully demonstrated and as we finish let me just say a couple of things a word for those for whom this may be quite new and you're not sure if you've got hold of it or whether you accept it. And then a word for those of us who uh, have already uh, put our faith in Jesus and been made righteous. Um, for those for whom this is quite new, let me. the best thing I could think of to do was uh, quote something I found which I think is fantastic. This is from uh, J.C. Ryle, who was Bishop of Liverpool uh, back at the turn of, uh, not the last century, but the one before. Um, this is what Ryle says. This, the cross of Christ, is the way of justification which exactly meets the wants and requirements of human nature. There is a conscience left in man, although he's a fallen being, 
there is a dim sense of his own need, which in his better moments will make itself heard, which nothing but Christ will satisfy. There's something within a man when his conscience is really awake, which whispers, there must be a price paid for my soul or no peace. At once the gospel meets him with Christ. There is something within a man when his conscience is really awake, which whispers, I must have some righteousness or title to heaven or no peace. At once the gospel meets him with Christ. There is something within man when his conscience is really awake, which whispers, there must be punishment and suffering because of my sins or no peace. At once the gospel meets him with Christ. This is the one true way of peace, justification by Christ. And here's how J.C. Ryle um, puts his challenge. He says, what do you know of Christ? I doubt not you have heard of him by the hearing of the ear. You know of his name. You are acquainted, perhaps, with the story of his life and death. But believe me, there is no peace with God excepting through Christ. Is this peace your own? Bought by Christ with his own blood, offered by Christ freely to all who are willing to receive it, is this peace your own? Oh, rest not, rest not, till you can give a satisfactory answer to my question. Have you peace? Are you justified? Powerful words calling us to think. Are we justified? Have we understood this? For those already made righteous, do you feel it? Let's remind ourselves um, how wonderful it is. Back on those courtroom steps, uh, walking out into the sun, you're free. There's no longer a criminal record against you. There's no stain on your reputation. There's nothing left that you could possibly be accused of. Better than that, we we weren't uh, wrongly accused. We were rightly accused, and yet we've never served a day of our sentence. As we love to sing, Jesus paid it all. Do we feel the joy of that? Uh, I guess some of us might be the analytical kind of character that needs to know how it works, and that is why Paul has written this. So if if this has left you unsure in any sense, dig further into Romans. uh, Because this is how it works. How we are able to be uh, walking free. So we can be sure. It's great to understand that mechanism. So feel the sun on your face. uh, The freedom to walk away from that courthouse. With gratitude to Christ and his death that has secured your righteousness. Take a step and keep walking. Let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you're not a God of compromise. That your justice, your righteousness is intact, even as you have found a way, the most wonderful way, to make us righteous when we didn't deserve it. Thank you so much for the the death of Jesus on the cross. Help us, Lord, to understand it if it is still uh, mysterious and confusing to us. Help us, Lord, to appreciate it, to love it, to feel the relief and the joy if we are those who have put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ.
Lord, help us to, to know the joy of the cross more and more each passing day. For your name's sake. Amen.